Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Superman, Roberta, and Tommy from Superman Smashes the Clan by Jean Luen Yang and Gui Hiru. And joining us for the discussion is first-time guest Jean Luen Yang. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Joseph. It's great to be here. I'm so glad uh, to have you on and to have a chance to talk about one of the icons of American popular culture and then this particularly uh, intriguing adaptation that you were able to help produce in Superman Smashes the Clan. Well, I'm always happy to talk about the Man of Steel. Big fan. <laughs> yeah, he is one of those, um, like for a lot of people, I think it's hard to remember when you first became aware of Superman as a character. He just kind of exactly. exists. He, you yeah, know, uh, yeah, he's always been a fabric of my world, I think. So you, do, do you remember your, like, your, the first adaptations of Superman you, or the first stories you were reading of Superman or is it just that he was always there? No, he, I mean, I, I, I remember things from my childhood. I don't remember which came first though. You know, there was that, so, so I'm in my 40s. I, I grew up with, the Super Friends cartoon. So that was there. I remember buying like a Superman uh, puzzle book from my school, like book fair. Uh, and then there's the Christopher Reeve movie I saw at some point. I don't remember which came first, though. He just always seemed like he was there. I remember um, being a child of the 80s. At one point, my parents got a VHS of like six hours of cartoons, and they were all just old cartoons that no one was claiming the rights to. But there were Fleischer Studio Superman cartoons interspersed okay. with like Three Stooges and Casper the Friendly Ghost cartoons. And I remember just fast forwarding until I, I could find the Superman yeah. Uh, yeah. cartoons in that in that six hours of low res yeah. <laughs> VHS cartoons. Yeah, that sounds about right. Those cartoons are gorgeous. I mean. Like if you look at them today, it says they they totally hold up. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah, the, the craftsmanship that went into those is is yeah. pretty amazing. And I think those had an influence on the the style of the Superman that is in Superman Smashes the Clan. The, uh, oh, the black absolutely. background of the S is the Fleischer Studios Superman. Yeah, that's right. That's that's right. a little distinct from the uh, the one that was appearing in the comic books at the time. Yeah. Um, so some trivia about this, Superman Smashes the Clan was a three-issue miniseries published in 2019 and 2020 by DC Comics, and it is a loose adaptation of a storyline story from the Adventures of Superman radio series. That storyline was called The Clan of the Fiery Cross, and that series saw Superman fight a thinly-veiled allegorical version of the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan was a legalized, recognized organization in several states at the time, so producers were hesitant to use the actual name of the KKK. Um, and in that story, the Klan targets a Chinese-American family who has moved into Metropolis. By target, I mean they use guns, bombs, threats to tar and feather children. It is, um, when you go back and listen to it, it is surprising uh, the level of the content for this kid show uh, that was yeah. present. Yeah, I agree. I was shocked by that when, when I went through and listened. And, and the other, uh, there's uh, some some charged language uh, that gets used uh, by, by the bad guys in the story that you would yeah. not find in, in stories today. And, um, you know, just a, a marker of the era, I think. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And that radio show, I think, is a really under-recognized element in solidifying the mythology of Superman in the fabric of American popular culture. It ran from 1940 to 1951 as either a three times a week or a five times a week radio show that was immensely popular. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. 
and that's, a, I mean, that's a very long run for a generation of kids that really is becoming like the, the wallpaper of their childhood is just that the Superman radio show is, is going to be on. And then that transitions yeah. very quickly to the new technology of, of television. Um, you know, the, the Christopher Reeves, um, uh, or sorry, George Reef, uh, Superman, uh, Adventure mm -hmm. of, uh, of Superman Radio, or t TV show brings in a lot of the same producers and writers that have been working on the radio show. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. You know, as a, as a comic book fan, um, I was really surprised at the number of recognizable pieces of the Superman mythos that were actually originally developed in the, in the radio show. I mean, so there's some big ones, right? Like Perry White, uh, Jimmy Olsen mm -hmm. got his name on the radio show, uh, Kryptonite. There's a, just a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and, and uh, like Superman, we have the urtext, like we have Action Comics number one. That's not the character we all think of yep. when we think of Superman. Uh, it is now no, this pastiche no. of all these adaptations that have been done, all the different writers and artists that have taken uh, taken over Superman in the comic books. Um, they've all influenced who the the pop cultural conception of this character is, and it's it's really fascinating to have this character that's been around since 1938. So we're you know we're we're nearing a century of this character, yep. and just literally hundreds of voices have been responsible for creating this idea of who Superman is. Um, certainly so much credit to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, but, but like you're saying, like some of the key things, kryptonite, you know, comes about in one of the first adaptations of Superman, not in those core comic books. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he really is like this. I mean, I mean, I think in order to last as long as he has, he really did have to evolve. Right. And, mm -hmm. and he goes through these different eras. So nowadays when you talk to Superman fans, different Superman fans will have different answers about what the, the era of Superman is. Is there an era for you that is the the right era of Superman or what feels like to you personally like the right version? Yeah, you know, I, I, I do gravitate towards um, 1940s interpretations of him. I think there's something just in the same way, like I, I feel like a lot of the Marvel characters are rooted in the, in the 60s and 70s. I, I feel like for DC, it's like late 30s and especially 40s. The 40s are where they really solidify. So there's something about that era and maybe the concerns of that era that I think are mirrored in my version of mm -hmm. Superman. And um, like you said, the the adaptations from that era, the Fleischer Studio cartoons, and then also the radio show, it can be a really entertaining <laughs> listen. Uh, yeah. You know, so a lot of um, what they were getting at in, in the comic books translated over into those other mediums, and I, I think those adaptations are are really impressive. Um, particularly Bud Collier as the voice of Clark Kent and Superman in the radio show, mm -hmm. that is just such an amazing performance uh, that that he was doing for so long. So when I was working on Superman Smash the Clan, I was actually listening to that radio show over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I, I listened to the the 16 episodes that make the make up the Clan of the Friary Cross episode. I don't know how many times, or the, the storyline, <laughs> I don't know how many times. But I had it playing in the car, right? And I would sometimes be taking my daughter, she was 11 at the time, to school, and I'd be listening to this. And I thought for sure she would kind of hate it. Because it sounds old, you know what I mean? It sounds really, really old. But she would always ask for the next episode. So I think there is, like, there are definitely pieces of that storyline that don't work well with modern sensibilities, but there's a core of it that still works, you know? Mm -hmm. It's yeah, uh, that one. And there's, there's, um, we, we don't have all of the episodes of the radio show. I mean, there were, mm -hmm. there were thousands that they did, but that we do have really 
um, long runs that are preserved. And I've listened to most of what exists that I'm aware of and that I've wow. been able to find and fr from the radio show. And um, it, it does a great job. Like you said, it's 15 minutes where you're getting a chapter and then it leaves you on the cliffhanger and you're like, well, the next one's really short. So I could, yep. <laughs> you know, I, I could listen to, <laughs> to, to the next one. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it can be, uh, um, you know, if you, if you can get your hands on it, I know there's lots of podcasts that have been like releasing the episodes and Audible has a collection of a whole bunch of the, uh, the, the radio episodes that are collected. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, like, like I said, some, not all of it holds up. Um, it is, uh, surprisingly political at times, uh, yeah. in, in ways that I think a lot of people say they don't want their entertainment to be political and they have some version in their head that never really existed of, yeah. <laughs> of stories, uh, that, that were apolitical because this is political from the get go. Um, and there's some, like I said, some elements don't always hold up well. So the use of some slurs, uh, that they used in, in this one from again from the bad guys talking but you just wouldn't hear that language used today but even in the uh in the war years there's some unfortunate stereotyping mm -hmm. of america's enemies that just feels like it's crossed a line beyond propaganda into into some real prejudice seducing uh tone mm -hmm. uh but still on the whole it's a, it's a fascinating like artifact of american pop culture it really is it really is i think i think it's it's just so defining for this american icon for superman mm -hmm. it's it's wonderful to dive into all that stuff and uh right before we started recording um i asked you the the artist that's credited on uh superman smashes the clan guru hero you said that is uh, a duo uh, it's a studio, correct? Uh, that yeah, it's a studio, this. but it really is two women. It's um, their names are Chifuyu Sasaki and uh, Naoko Kawano. So I've worked with them on multiple projects. Now we did five volumes of the Avatar: The Last Airbender comics, and I just think that I think they're among the elite of the elite working in world comics today. You know, they've done work for Marvel and DC and Dark Horse, and they are really able to combine this. I don't know, like, like I, I feel like they, they combine the sensibilities of American superhero comics with manga in this beautiful and energetic way. Mm -hmm. Yes, the art in this really does um, hold up very well as having kind of like a timeless cartoony quality, but just also incredibly clear storytelling. Like the, you, there's never a moment where it's like, okay, where, where am I supposed to go with the panel layout yeah. or anything like that? It just works so well. And just the overall style, I think really suits for, uh, suits the, the kind of Superman story that you're telling that is rooted in that 1940s era, but is also kind of timeless. Uh, and there's a there's yeah. a tone that they managed to get with their sensibilities that, that I think fits it very well. Yeah, yeah. We we talked early on about how we kind of wanted it to feel like um, like those old Fleischer Superman cartoons crossed with more modern manga, and I think they just they hit it right on the head. You know, it, it's beautiful. Yeah, it, it's it's got like a lovely mix of. Um, like some really strong angles on like Superman's chin and everything, but then also like really smooth cartoony for the young characters. Um, you uh -huh. know, just something that just feels right as, as you read through it. Yeah, yeah, they're so good. All right, well, before we get on to the summary of this mini-series, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not covering as full episodes yet on the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So now on to the summary of Superman Smashes the Clan. Now, the issue opens with Superman battling a Nazi supervillain, Adam Man, who is a from a different story arc in uh, the radio series. 
Um, and Adaman is powered by Kryptonite, as Gene mentioned. This is the introduction of Kryptonite into the Superman mythology. Superman defeats his foe, but has a strange reaction to the green rock that powered Adaman's mechanical suit. He feels woozy and sees his hand seem to transform into an alien hand, like green alien. And Clark Kent will continue to have strange uh, experiences, feeling sick and seeing an alien reflection in the mirror. Again, that kind of green skin and bug-eyed pulp science fiction alien from the 1940s pulp magazines. Uh, the Lee family is moving into China uh, from Chinatown into Metropolis. The children are Tommy and Roberta. They go to visit the Unity House, which is a youth center run by a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. There they meet Jimmy Olsen. Tommy is a great pitcher and is invited to join the Unity House baseball team. The previous pitcher, Chuck Riggs, is not a fan of this change to the lineup. Uh, Chuck's uncle Matt hears about Chuck losing his starting pitcher spot to a new kid, and he assumes it must be one of those foreign new kids that are coming into Metropolis. And uh, when he hears that the new kid's last name is Lee, he reveals to Chuck that he's a grand scorpion in the clan of the Fiery Cross and is dedicated to ensuring one race, one color, and one religion in America. Clark Kent has a dream, remembering a strange alien language coming from a device his parents hid from him when he was a kid. In the dream, he sees Ma and Pa Kent as green aliens uh, who tell him that he's now beginning to remember. Roberta and Tommy wake up to a burning cross in their yard uh, and men in hoods standing outside their house. Roberta recognizes Chuck's shoes under one of the robes. The clan disperses and the Lees are scared but safe. Clark remembers reading pulp magazines with a friend in Smallville when they were bullied. Uh, uh, and though Clark doesn't know what's happening, he begins to float in the air. He remembers and shooting lasers out of his eyes and this scares all the, all the kids that are around him. And on the cover of one of those pulp magazines is the bug-eyed green alien shooting lasers from his eyes that he's starting to see in the mirror as he's having these visions. Uh, the clan kidnaps Tommy. Roberta tries to go and get help, but nobody will listen to her. She goes to Jimmy Olsen for help, and Clark overhears their conversation. Jimmy and Roberta go to confront Chuck Riggs, who refuses to help them until Superman arrives because Superman is Chuck's hero. Chuck admits that he thinks he can take Superman to where the clan meets. Uh, Tommy who is uh, being kidnapped again. He punches one of the clan members and he jumps out of the moving car and he falls into a river. Issue number two, Superman, Roberta, and Chuck arrive where the clan performs their rituals, but they don't see Tommy. Superman sees a vision of his alien parents again who coach him to look. And he focuses and uses x-ray vision to see where Tommy is caught in the river. He rescues him. Um, and uses his cape as a sling uh, for what looks like a broken, broken arm that Tommy suffered. Uh, Superman lets Roberta keep the cape after they get Tommy to the hospital, and her mom sews it into a jacket for her. The Daily Planet offers a reward for information about the clan. Chuck sees his uncle making a bomb, and his uncle warns him, warns him to stay away from the Unity House. Chuck goes and gets all the kids that at the Unity House to go see a movie, so they're, they're away from there. Roberta sees some of her old friends from Chinatown, but they treat Roberta differently now that she lives in Metropolis. Uh, after seeing the sci-fi movie, Roberta tells Chuck that she saw his shoes when the clan attacked her house. He apologizes and says at least he kept all the kids away from the Unity House uh, because he thinks the clan might attack it. Roberta remembers the priest, the minister, and the rabbi are still there, so they run back to the Unity House. Chuck and Tom Tommy go to call for help. Clark hears their call to the Daily Planet. Superman shows up at the Unity House as robed men are leaving, and he captures them and goes inside and rescues the leaders uh, from a bomb that does go off. Other members of the clan, angered by the ad that the Daily Planet had put out, go and kidnap Perry White, Lois Lane, and Inspector Henderson, who was at the newspaper. Issue number three, Superman rescues Perry, Lois, and the inspector and captures most members of the Metropolis chapter of the Klan. But Chunk's uncle escapes with the help of a police officer who is also a member of the Klan. Superman returns to Smallville and finds that device that he remembers hearing the alien voices coming from when he was a kid. He sees a vision of his Kryptonian parents, but not as green bug-eyed monsters, um, but as, uh, you know, Jor-El and uh, Lara that we 
we know as uh, Superman fans, <laughs> his visions uh, give him insight into his Kryptonian heritage that he had never fully embraced. Meanwhile, Chuck's Uncle Matt goes to his higher up in the clan organization and is disgusted when he learns that the Grand Imperial Mogul, uh, that for the Grand Imperial Mogul, that's the higher up in the clan organization, this whole thing is not about preserving a pure white race or even hating foreigners. It is just about making money. The Mogul says foreigners coming to America help him to live the comfortable lifestyle he deserves so long as they keep working beneath him. And Ray Matt kills the Grand Mogul and takes um, some weapons at the next Unity House baseball game. Matt grabs Roberta from the crowd and walks out onto the field wearing his clan robes. Chuck stands up to his uncle and hits the gun out of his hand with a baseball mat. Uh, bat. Matt pulls out another weapon when Superman arrives, and he is now flying and has laser eyes. I guess I, I, I maybe didn't note earlier. Uh, this version of Superman as the Golden Age Superman wasn't yet fully formed in terms of powers. He could uh, run super fast. He could leap great distances, but he was not the flying, almost, uh, you know, all powerful Superman. And so this is like an evolution in terms of uh, the powers that he is displaying. With the help of Roberta, Superman is able to stop uh, Matt and end the danger to the Unity House and the present danger the clan posed to the immigrants in Metropolis. Inspired by Lois Lane, Roberta becomes a cub reporter for the Daily Planet using her original Chinese name, Lan Xin Li. The end. That's great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for reading it. Thank you so much for reading it. Um, so this uh, adaptation uh, of the radio show, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the process of taking this audio drama that ran for 16 uh, chapters of the radio show and how do you transform that into, you know, the, a, a, a self-contained comic book, uh, you know, three issue miniseries. Yeah. You know, I, I first uh, heard about that radio show from, um, that book Freakonomics. I think they have a whole chapter on it and on, mm -hmm. on its significance. Yeah. Uh, and specifically on the fact that this is an example of, of fiction that actually had a real world impact that after the radio show aired, um, the real life Ku Klux Klan saw a tremendous dip in membership because nobody wanted to go and join this group that Superman had called out as, as bigots. And so the, for, kids, for, the kids were, uh, yeah. were, were defeating as they played Superman. It was to go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Nobody wanted that. Nobody wanted that. And, and for geeks, you know, a lot of times we're sort of, um, I, I know it's true for my parents. Like my parents would always be like, why are you reading these comic books about these guys in capes? That's not real. But here's an example of how a story that isn't real actually can have a real impact, right? So I was always intrigued. Um, I was especially intrigued when I found out that the, you know, the, the central tension and in the middle of it all was this Chinese American family. I've been reading Superman comics since I was in the fifth grade. I just don't remember that many <laughs> characters look like me in those stories, you know? So um, I proposed it to DC Comics, I, I don't know, a few years ago. We, I, I was lucky enough to have breakfast with Marie Javins, who is now the publisher at DC. And, um, and she said, yes, she said, yes. So the, the, the first thing we did was I, I actually, you know, I just listened to that radio show over and over and over again. I, I think um, like, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of it feels dated, but I, mm -hmm. I do think that the core of it, like the bones of that story still work, you know? So we took the bones of that story and we kind of built on top of it. One of the things that I really wanted to do was I wanted to explore that Chinese American family. In, in the original radio show, 
we really only hear from the mother, I'm sorry, we only hear from the father and the son. So the other two members of that family, the mom and the daughter are just mentioned in a line of dialogue and we never hear from them. And I, I thought, especially for that daughter, you know, there was a, there's an opportunity there to explore who that character was. Um, and, and because we don't even learn her name, it felt like we could really do something with that. So, um, so I kind of, used her as the second protagonist in addition to, to Superman. One of the things that I really love about Superman, so when I was a kid, like when I was in fifth grade buying those Superman co comic books, um, I only bought them because my mom made me buy them, right? What I really wanted were like the Spider-Man comics and there was a comic that had the thing in it from, from Fantastic Four. Yeah, the Marvel 2-in-1. Yeah, Marvel 2-in-1 was so good. It was so <laughs> great. And it was because those characters look creepy, right? Like even Spider-Man, because he has his whole face covered, looks creepy. And Superman looks the exact opposite of creepy. He looks like, I don't know, he just he, he's every parent's favorite superhero. That's what he is. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but I saw someone on social media recently say, I think the world, like like any writer who's writing Superman just needs to think, I am writing the Tom Hanks of the superhero community. Yeah. <laughs> and what, I, I, once I heard that, again, I can't remember who it was. It was, it was a comic book yeah. creator. Uh, I, like, like, yep, yeah. that would be his role in the superhero community. Just yeah. this kind of like yeah. almost, you know, kindly, you know, father figure. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And Tom Hanks is a super awesome guy, right? He's a really nice yes. guy, but I don't know if he's that exciting. You know, like mm -hmm. he's just not as exciting as uh, as a lot of the other folks out there. And that's how Superman was to me. But eventually, I, um, you know, what would actually like turn me into a Superman fan was realizing this dude is like from an alien planet. He's from another culture. And his whole life is actually about navigating between these two parts of his identity, which I feel like for, for a lot of immigrants kids, like that's that's our reality, you know? And, and, and the fact that he was created by immigrants kids i think also uh made a big difference for me so i really wanted to lean in on that for for superman smashes a clan so and i think that's one I thing think that you definitely added to that radio show is this highlighting superman's uh his own sense of uh of difference and his embracing of his heritage is not present in the radio show but it is definitely core to this storyline yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and I think, um, you know, one of the things that longtime Superman fans know is that he began as really this glorified circus strongman, right? He couldn't fly, he could really only jump. And if you read those early Superman comics, they even put a limit to how much he could jump. He's like 20 stories and that's it. He can't go higher than 20 stories, right? And it was like an eighth of a mile. He could jump across an eighth of a mile. So to go from there to uh, the Superman that we know now i just saw there's an opportunity there to, to kind of use a power set to talk about some other issues you know yeah and i, I love uh that idea of like embracing uh a heritage where he had been kind of um you know not rejecting it but ignoring it right and and embracing yeah. uh these different aspects of himself he's discovering more of himself yeah yeah. And, and that, I mean, that kind of, that kind of thing does show up um, in old Superman, like comics and old Superman stories. I mean, even, even Man of Steel, the movie, right. Touches on that some. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think early in the, the Grant Morrison run um, for new 52, mm -hmm. I think his Superman also was like, you know, Lex Luthor referred to him as it because he's from another planet. So that, that's always been there, but I did, I did want to lean in on that. Cause I, I feel like that's what, ultimately made me connect with the character. 
And I think one thing that's interesting that you were able to do in, in highlighting that is you you pulled in some of like the, that imagery from 1940s pulp sci-fi magazines, right? The uh, that you have him reading, but then also when the kids go to uh, the the movie serial that they go see, it's oh, I'm assuming you made that character up, right? I can't remember the name that it was. It was Doctor Something, but it was it seemed like a Flash Gordon analog. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He he was a Flash Gordon analog, but I didn't make him up. He oh, actually. He actually, yeah, those both of those characters. It was okay. like uh, Genghis Akeem <laughs> and I forgot Captain. I don't remember, but I, I looked it up and right. I found them in these old, old action comics. Oh, okay, so, so those, those like, were real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was real. but but I I did change them a little bit of, though. That yeah, and some of the casual kind of racist portrayals yeah. that were yeah. very much a part of the the um you know the, the popular quickly produced entertainment of the 40s and 50s and and yeah. I mean I'm not arguing at all that we we've, we've left that but when you look back at like Flash Gordon against Ming the Merciless there's definitely the the yellow peril is very yes. much uh, um a part of that and so being that you know the movie that the kids go see it just seemed to be layering in some of this idea of of um, how pervasive and um, some of that othering uh, that um, immigrants would have been experiencing in, in the culture at the yeah. time. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think that the, um, the, the markers of Asianness were often used as a sh- like a shorthand for just alienness in general, right? And, and, and Ming the Merciless is a, mm-hmm. is a perfect example, but that's all, all over the place. I think, I mean, mm-hmm. in, a, in a, maybe in a softer way, it's even present in like how Mr. Spock was portrayed uh, in, in Star Trek, right? Like there's a, there's a certain alienness. And, and even though he's a positive character, I do think there's a coldness there that they built in, that they wanted. And they, and they pulled from these old, this old visual language in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which lends to like this, this sense of otherness yeah, uh, that, right. that is being um, both, both implicitly and explicitly taught. Uh, in the texts that are being consumed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think about um, how subtle some of the the like the coding uh, that that children learn is from media, uh, you know, and how they they start to um, consume they consume media and how they start to uh, form things, even though you know they know it's fiction and we know it's fiction, but the, but they learn from that. And um, like my my oldest daughter's twelve, and I still remember when she was. Um, like four, uh, she used to play and have like tea parties with Hulk and her her Disney princesses, and it, and they were all together. And then one day she said, "Those are boy toys," and moved like the superhero stuff to the mm-hmm. side. I was like, "Whoa, how did that happen?" Because mm-hmm. I have not been teaching her that these are the girl toys and those are the boy toys. This is just yeah. you know go play. And then I realized I'd let her watch. Um, a Cartoon Network show, whereas normally she'd been watching like PBS shows that didn't have any ads, and the ads in the Cartoon Network show very clearly are teaching. Here's what boys play with. Here's what girls play with. And she had yeah. internalized it, it, you know, within just a few episodes of watching Strawberry Shortcake is what I think it was. <laughs> um, yeah. I can't remember exactly, uh, but but you know that that kind of coding as to you know the gender roles she had learned from a few yeah. commercials, and so how much coding in terms of race identity uh, and and gender and all these other things are present in the media that that get consumed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think for, for me, a lot of growing up has been about like realizing what's in my head and where it's from and how it affects, <laughs> you know, how I see myself, how, what I, what, how, how I interpret the image that I see in the mirror and how I interpret how I see my family. You know, yeah. a lot of it is just about recognizing it and maybe pulling some of the, the ugly stuff out of my head. Um, you mentioned that in the radio show, like Roberta and um, her mom aren't aren't very prominent characters that they're mentioned mm-hmm. 
in this, Roberta takes much more um, of, of a primary role in the series. And one thing that I thought was really interesting is that as the Lee family is moving to Metropolis, we have this, this sequence where, where she gets car sick and she throws up on a jacket that she loves. It's almost like a security blanket, right? And yeah. um, her dad is saying, no, I've got a new job. We'll just buy you a new jacket. And, and she's like, well, I, I kind of want that jacket. But then we also see her mom then make the Superman cape into the new jacket that is, you know, it, it, it and I, I love that idea of like the link between her mother and, um, family and but then also the new culture that she's assimilating into but then also having like these pieces of of her old culture um it seemed to all be coming together in a, in a really nice bit of symbolism there and roberta um so many of the characters in this definitely are, are going through this process of what it means to assimilate into the new city that they're moving into and like her brother uses like kind of some derogatory terms just casually that she feels are like you know you shouldn't do that we need to celebrate our culture not not and her brother's clearly trying to like fit in with her around her. And mm -hmm. she ends up being more of this, this beacon of um, kind of doing both, like becoming um, the, the best of both parts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think that that kind of, that does mirror a lot of what uh, most immigrant kids have to go through, right. To, to figure out, like I, I visited China for the very first time as an adult. I, I think I was in my early twenties. And I remember being there and thinking, all of this feels so familiar to me, but it feels like it's it's a culture that I know only through echoes. And, and that really, like that trip really solidified to me that I'm not, I'm like Chinese American, I'm not Chinese. I'm like this amalgamation of these, these different cultures, right? And, and I think a lot of us um, who are immigrants kids, that's what growing up is about. It's about figuring out what that amalgamation is. So I, I wanted to have uh, Roberta you know, go through that. And, and the jacket, I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out. That was, that was definitely part of the symbolism there. Uh, and, and, we did and, have this long debate though about the jacket. Oh, really? <laughs> because like, well, well, yeah, because like in some, in some iterations of Superman, his cape is made out of this Kryptonian cloth that you just can't, you can't sew with a regular like mm -hmm. human sewing machine. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So we're like looking, is there, is there, is there a precedence for him just having a regular old cloth cape? And there is, there is. Yes. So that's why we ended up going that way. Uh, you definitely see it both ways. I think because some authors love the tattered cape, um, you know, yep. the, after a flat right. sword explosion. So you have to be able to have it, have it look, yep. you know, battle worn, the battle worn Superman costume. Yeah, that's uh, right. But then if you've made it all indestructible, you, you never, you never reach that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That's right. Uh, well, and then Roberta, it, it, as we see her maturation and growth in these series, she also becomes somewhat of like a sage guide to Superman, kind of saying you're, you're kind of doing what, what I'm seeing Tommy do, right? You know, you're, yeah. you're, 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 um, lessening a part of your culture and part of your, your heritage. And that, you know, after that talk is when we see this fully formed Superman, uh, yeah. that, that fits more of what we know of Superman. I think, I think that's part, like my favorite iterations of Superman have that right. Where he doesn't see himself as above humanity. He actually really wants to be a part of humanity. So he's willing to learn from humanity as well. He, he's willing to learn from these beings that frankly, he could just, you know, crush with a flick of his finger. But I, I think that just goes to show who he is. Like that's an expression of who he is as a character. Right, the, the humanity that makes us love yeah. uh, Superman. It's not just the, the flying and the muscles and, and you know, the, the laser eyes and x-ray vision and all that. It, yeah. you, you need to have something there that, that yeah. uh, readers can connect with. Um, in, in writing Superman, you got to do some really cool things like Superman changed in a phone booth. And I was, I was surprised how happy <laughs> I was to see Superman change in a phone booth, which I even went and looked it up. I'm like, it, it, 
I don't re- really remember seeing him do that very often in reading Superman comics or even in, in the movies. It's usually just a wink and a nod to the idea of Superman doing that. And it was in the Fleischer cartoons is where you see him do yep. it most, uh, more yep. than more than in all the comic run, it seems, and more than any of the other adaptations that have happened since. It's really those Fleischer cartoons, which uh, are, you know, a touchstone for the visual uh, language of, of this, this miniseries. But was it just fun as a fan of Superman to be able to do oh, some of those so moments? Fun. Yes, it was so fun. And especially now that like, my kids don't know what a phone booth is, right? <laughs> I, I mean, that's so iconic. I, I think that um, we don't we don't realize how iconic that phone booth is until it's gone, right? So, so I got to visit um, DC Comics. Like I just started working with them when they were still in New York. And I went into the office and in their waiting room was this phone booth. They actually have a phone booth and a statue of Clark Kent with some of his like a Superman costume showing, right? right? And then they moved to Burbank. So now they're located in Burbank and the office is gorgeous. The the lobby is gorgeous, but they they don't have that phone booth there anymore. And I remember (laughs) feeling kind of sad about that. Like everything is gorgeous, but the phone booth is gone. Think about that. Uh, similarly, like there's a couple of these like page turns as I'm reading the book where you get to like the full page spread of Superman being Superman and like flying. And I just had to think as as a creator, it's got to be like pretty amazing to be able to say, you know, now this is what, what we're going to have next for Superman. And I, so I'm just wondering, is it is it like a special for yes. this character for you to be able to get to those moments of the story? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of us especially a lot of us who are working in superheroes, what we're actually trying to do is recreate some moment from our childhood when we did a page turn and, and like something lit up in our hearts, right? And, and that's absolutely what I was trying to do. I, I think um, like, especially the, 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 there's a page turn in there where um, Superman uses his, um, his uh, heat vision, right? For the, for the first time in public. And the way Gurihiro drew that, it was just uh, shocking to me. Like it, it was like a thousand times better than how I was imagining it as I was typing it in. You know, I, I think they did such a, uh, an amazing job. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like when I got that, I got that page in my email. I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't, like I can't believe I wrote that. You know, they, they just kicked it up like a billion different notches. And it really felt like, like when I saw that image, it felt like I was actually seeing Superman, you know, fly and 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 do heat vision for the first time. It's just they're they're that good. They're, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, uh, lots of praise to the to the art in this miniseries. Um, for you, as you're working on this kind of adaptation, do you have a target audience in mind? Because superheroes right now exist in a very strange place where they are more well yes. known than any point in history. Uh, but as far as uh, comic book readers, like there's not the same audience that existed in when Superman was created, no. or even no. when I was a kid in the '80s reading comics, it was very different than what the target audience is now. So, as a creator, how how much do you try and keep in mind who who do I expect to pick this up and read it? Yeah, I mean, for for this particular book, it really was targeted at younger readers. You know, it is part of DC Comics' Young Readers line, which was. Um, just getting started a couple of years ago. I think uh, Superman Smashes the Clan might have been part of the second or third wave of that line. Uh, and the entire line, the whole point of it is to re-engage young readers with superhero stories. It's weird, right? Like when I was a kid, that was the most prevalent version of comics. Like the superhero comics were it. And, and now it's kind of the opposite. Now, you know, I'm lucky enough to go to different schools and, and library communities to talk about the comics that I work on. 
almost every kid in the audience has read a comic, but it's almost always graphic novels. And it's almost always like middle grade memoir, like Raina Telgemeier and Vera Braskel. Um, gorgeous, amazing comics, right? But we also, I, I, I feel like with the DC Young Readers line, it's like, it's we're trying to build a bridge between the kind of comics that kids are reading today and the comics that we grew up with. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting. And I think it's, um, like I said, like kids are probably more kids are aware of a wider number of superheroes than when I was a kid. (laughs) But I don't know that there's as many kids that are reading superhero comics, which was never like a huge percentage of my classmates were reading superhero comics. But there was, you you knew who the other readers were. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. You know, the ones who actually knew, you know, the secret identity of every superhero. And now because of the films and the all the adaptations, I think they're so widely known. But um the the comics are definitely uh, i mean a lot of what's being produced by marvel dc seems to be targeting more like 20 to 30 year olds than yeah in young yeah. readers or so may, having or this maybe kind even of older yeah mm-hmm. or maybe even older yeah yeah and sometimes it's it's just so dense also like you really need to know like the 40 year history of this character to be able to pick up the yeah. issue and understand what's going on and one thing i really liked about superman smashes the clan is if you just know who superman is you're going to get this it's it's going to work <laughs> um, yeah. uh and so uh i, I think it's definitely going to be accessible and if you are targeting this younger reader, I think you're dealing with some really important themes about prejudice, about identity, um, about assimilation and culture and, and respecting other cultures and all these things. Um, what kind of thought do you have to put into, into like how much of this is subtext, how much of this is text, how much yeah. of this, uh, you know, how, how heavy a hand do you, do you, do you want to have? It's, it's gotta be an interesting like thought exercise to go through in, in writing it. I would imagine. It was, it was hard. It was hard. We, we had multiple discussions about it. Uh, Marie, my editor and I just, we, we talked over and over and over again, both over the phone and over email. And, and I do think I was inspired by the fact that that original radio show was meant for kids. You know, it dealt with really hard topics in sometimes brutal ways, but it was still for kids. So I I felt like going in, I knew there was a way to do it. And as long as we, um, you know, put the time into it, that Mm -hmm. that we we would be able to figure it out. But but it was, we had multiple discussions about stuff, about where that line was, you know, like, like how do you, how do you deal with subjects like racism in a serious way, but still have it appropriate for like an eight or nine or 10 year old to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like it's, it does hit a good theme, but I think it, but by virtue of the fact that it is hitting a good balance there, it means a lot of work went into <laughs> get, yeah. finding that balance. <laughs> yeah. um, and that radio show, like um, I was double checking and yeah, like the storyline, a couple before this one was called Superman versus the hate monger organization. Uh, yep. And, and I think in between there's one about like a crooked political system. <laughs> so yeah. it is, is, is setting up. So it's, it's really, again, like interesting social topics were being engaged head on in that kid's radio show. Yeah. Yes. Super political. It was like crazy political. Mm-hmm. From from the World War II on, so I went and listened to the the Clan of the Fiery Cross, uh, sixteen episodes, just to remind myself after I read uh, your adaptation. And there's one moment where the character of Poco shows up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who I was just like, oh, that's right. They have a very strange comedic 
character who ends up being Perry White's butler, if I'm remembering yeah, right, who's an right. alien from another that's planet right. that speaks that's in right. rhyme. That's right. Was there ever a, a, a desire we to never, insert Poco in? We never decided. We never, yeah, we never had that, even between <laughs> that thought. I think we laughed a little bit about it, but then we just kind of let it go. Yeah, because it's such an odd insert in this, like, why is he even yeah. in this particular storyline uh, yeah. in the radio show? And, like, I had a really, like, stretch back because it's been years since I was listening to the radio, you know, did that run through listening to the radio show um and i was like who is poco oh right that yeah. alien <laughs> that <was around. laughs> yeah it's so weird i mean that's part of the experimentation right that was one of the pieces unlike kryptonite that poco didn't really make a jump into the comics yeah. <laughs> um it in um one, one other part of this that i really enjoyed was the roberta and tommy brother-sister relationship because you get that line that siblings seem to be able to ride of you are the most annoying person in the world and i will do anything to protect you yeah. uh, so i was see that-, that at my own house all the time we have four kids i see that all the time right like yeah. they're like best friends worst enemies yeah so there's no one that can annoy you or knows what buttons to push quite so well as a sibling yeah, but then also right. they they can be incredibly protective uh, yeah. in that, and so I thought that that relationship was captured really well. Um, in in trying to present the immigrant family dynamic, um, were there any themes that you wanted to make sure that you were bringing into the story um, as as these kind of point of view characters, the Lee family? Yeah, I, I mean, I I think when I look at my own family, you know, my extended family, my uncles and my aunts and my cousins, my my parents and me, um, all of us have different ways of dealing with the immigrant experience, different ways of figuring out how American uh, culture fits with Chinese culture. And I wanted to, to show that with this family. So I, I think with um, with Dr. Lee, with the dad, I, I wanted to show like a desire to really melt into the melting pot, melt to the point where nobody even sees you as Chinese anymore. And I saw that, I saw that, especially with my older relatives. Uh, a lot of them really did have that deep desire. And then um, with uh, with the mom, with Mrs. Lee, I wanted to show sort of a, just having trouble fitting in. I think that was true of my own grandmother. She just really had trouble fitting in. Her her She she lived in America for the last maybe 10 years of her life and she never felt at home, right? Uh, and then with Tommy and Roberta, I think Roberta is a little bit more contentious. So she 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 feels the tension more than Tommy does. And I think Tommy tries to get away with making lots of jokes, mm-hmm. often at his own expense. Um, and I saw that too. You know, I, I feel like I've gone through periods of my life where that was my strategy. Um, so I wanted to, to show that contrast as well. It really was like just showing the different ways in which my family has dealt with it. I wanted to put on the page. In, in some ways, um, this is reaching back for any listeners who have been with us for a long time. One of the first books that we covered on the podcast was House on Mango Street, which deals mm-hmm. with the immigrant experience from uh, a Chicana perspective. And each chapter is like a different slice of life for a character. But you see a lot of what you're describing, what I saw in the Lee family, like just these different versions of Mexican-Americans trying to find or Latino-Americans um, trying to find that balance of who they were. And in some time, in that book, it gets highlighted a lot that um, for for many of the characters, there's a sense of liminality of like, I'm living in between two spaces and I don't know where I actually belong, right? Like I'm, <laughs> I, uh, I I see America, I see Mexico and I'm, I'm neither, but I'm here. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, what, what does that actually mean for me? And I, th- I think in um, not very many panels, you got to sense 
a lot of what you're identifying for those. Um, like the um, the Lee family, it's it's not uh, the parents. We don't spend a whole lot of time with them, but I definitely was able to pull away. And I and I loved the comic book technique that you used of putting the mom's language in red word balloons and red text boxes uh, when when she was speaking Chinese because comic books have a long history of doing weird things with other languages and trying to show yeah. <laughs> this is translated <laughs> like like yeah. whether it's like just a little asterisk box of saying like this is now translated from russian whenever Colossus you know speaks and yeah. and x-men yeah. comics or things like that but that was just using embracing some of the visual strengths of comic books to say here is um you know her speaking her language and then you use that for the kryptonian speech of uh you know superman's visions or clark kent's visions uh green green word balloons uh for those um and and so i, th I think you actually were able to pull in um some some unique aspects of the comic book medium to to represent some of those feelings of um alienation that can happen with the immigrant experience yeah the difference in um in coloring colors that was done by Janice Chang who's this legendary letterer who used to um, letter for Stan Lee when he was writing um the super super Sp the Spider-Man newspaper strip so she's <laughs> she's lettered for lots and lots of legends she's a legend herself because of that but the the idea of using um different colors for different languages we started experimenting with that when I was working on um, New Superman, which is a monthly series from DC Comics a few years ago about a, a Chinese kid who living in Shanghai who inherits some of Clark Kent's powers and becomes the, the Superman of China. But in that story, we wanted to deal with multiple uh, languages, you know, so sometimes English and sometimes there are characters from other parts of the world as well. And we just thought that the the standard way used to be using those pointy brackets. The I'm sure carrots, you remember that. Is that what they call it? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, the carrots. The carrots, I feel like the carrots are okay if you only have one language. But if you have multiple languages in a book, like one foreign language, if you, if you have multiple foreign languages in a book, it becomes more problematic. It becomes just clunkier, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, so the coloring, it seemed like it, it, it worked okay. So we, we wanted to do it here too. Yeah. And um, the other thing I want to highlight, I, th I think I already touched on it, but that one panel of uh, Roberta's mom sewing Superman's cape into that jacket, like it just dripped with love <laughs> and giving <laughs> everything that she could in this moment. And I think that panel is going to stick with me for a really long time. Uh, and knowing the struggles that Roberta's mom was seemed to be having to uh, to feel like she belonged here in Metropolis and, and what her role uh, was going to be. And, and she found something she could do for her daughter. Uh, it just seemed like a special little moment that didn't have to be in the comic, but I love that it was in the comic. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, that, that really was, that, that's a testament to, to Guru Hero too. They, they, uh, they're able to pull off that ambiance so well. It's they're stunning. So uh, in the past we've had, um, uh, like, like we had uh, David Peterson on once to talk about Mouse Guard, which he writes and draws entirely mm -hmm. by himself. Uh, that comic book series, for you, it, which I know you've you've done your own comics uh, entirely, but what's it like to collaborate with artists where you are trying to present like ideas that you have, but also highlight their strengths and allow them to have a voice? What is you know what is, what is that process like for creating this book? In I mean, for Guru Hero, because we we've done so many pages already, right? We did five volumes of those Avatar comics. There were, um, let me see, no, it was five storylines, three volumes each. Each volume had seventy-two pages. I don't know how many pages that is. I can't do math that fast, but it's a lot. We had a lot of pages under our belt, and, and because of that, I, I kind of knew 
what their strengths were. I knew um, I knew they could do action really well. I knew that they could pull out the charisma of characters very well, you know, and and they could ride that line between cute and serious um, just perfectly. So I, I feel like for for me working with them, my uh, scripts are much more sparse than they would be for a, an artist that I never worked with. Because there are just some things I know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna type in this line, they don't even read English, right? I'm gonna type in this line, it's gonna get translated. I know they're gonna do something awesome with it, you know? So it's, uh, it's, it's really just a joy to work with them. I, I, uh, I'm friends with Mariko Tamaki, who's another comic book writer. And we talk about Guru Hero all the time, how we're like constantly trying to fight to work with them because they're so good. <laughs> Uh, well, it sounds like it must be, I mean, you, you, you talked about like opening the email when, when new art comes, yeah. it's just going to be kind of exciting yeah. to see yeah. a story now. So another creator has had a hand in it and w- what is it going to be? Yeah. As it comes yeah, through here. Exactly. Like it's, it's totally different from writing and drawing my own book, right? Like when I'm writing and drawing my own book, often, um, as I'm drawing it, artist me will curse writer me. Like, like, why'd you make this a crowd scene? You know, why didn't you cut down the number of characters on this page? But then when I'm writing for somebody else, I send it off and then these pages magically appear in my email box. It's awesome. Well, uh, the, the strength of the collaboration stands for this. And I know um, I haven't read them, but I think my, my daughter has read some of the, uh, the Avatar The Last Airbender uh, stuff and has... Um, praised that as well so uh i will definitely keep an eye out for guru heroes uh you know our artwork uh in, in projects um to wrap up i was just wondering if you had any final thoughts on superman as a character like what why do you think this is a character that has managed to endure for 80 years what is it that makes him special so somebody smarter than me said that the i don't remember who but he said that the um what makes Superman special isn't the fact that he's so powerful. It's that he's so powerful and still remains good. And I think that's it, right? Like that's that's the fantasy is that somebody can have that much power and still be to their core a, a good person. Um, I, I think um, I think that's what it is. That like we need Superman as an example of how we need to be as we grow in power, you know, and I think that's true for kids, right? As they get older, as they become, come into their own power, they need that example for, for how to be good. And even for us adults, as um, we, we come into positions of authority and responsibility, we need to remember to, to stay good the way Superman does. I like that a lot. Uh, And I always fascinated with like what the next version of Superman that we're going to get is, you know, who as yeah. new creators get a chance to tell the story. They're not always going to work. They're always going to become like the, the a, a new core aspect, but um, he, he's a character that's proved he can endure maybe versions that aren't your favorite and yep. there'll be a new version <laughs> that, that yep. comes along at some point. <laughs> and I love this version in Superman smashes the clan, this kind of a uh, callback to, to that early era. It, um, there's a uh, novel called it's Superman that was set in the, in the 1930s that um, does a lot of, um, work that makes you think I wish there was like a more widely seen version of Superman that was set then Mm -hmm. like we always want it to be now I think and and uh I I think particularly for like movies and and cartoons there's a little uh intimidation factor of trying to do a period piece with it but I kind of wish we could see uh an adaptation (laughs) that that I agree 
I totally agree. I mean, just looking at the cars alone, right? That was one of the things that I look forward to with getting Guru Huru's pages is watching them draw old cars. I always wanted to see them draw old cars. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thank you again for uh, coming on and talking about Superman. And then the other question I had, because she becomes such an integral part of this, if you could like encapsulate who you think you felt Roberta was in just a few words, like what defines Roberta as a character in this? Yeah, I, I thought of her as somebody who... Uh, ultimately um, found the courage to fit those puzzle pieces together. Like the two halves of herself, she found the courage to fit them together. Um, and, and, and her courage ultimately was like a yin-yang with uh, Superman's courage, where mm -hmm. his courage inspired her and then her courage inspired him. Yeah, and, and that's how we get the full version of Superman that we're getting at the end, the one who can fly. Uh, and and again, Guru Hero's art of Superman flying is amazing. I loved seeing Superman run on power lines <laughs> early on, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, before he could fly. The idea of him just running along the power lines as a, as a blur. It, it, there's something that's a little magical about that in a different way that flight is magical uh, in terms of the imagination. But when we get to that last chapter and he, he's flying, it's just like, oh, this feels right. <laughs> this art, uh, this moment, it's all coming together. And I like what you said of um, that cycle of inspiration, right? You know, that that she had been inspired by Superman and then she had the chance to to um, in, inspire him. And and with the family dynamic that's core there, um, I know that's something that I've seen like with my own kids that, uh, you know, at times I think I've got to take the lead and kind of show them. And then there's times where I'm just like, step back and like, wow, <laughs> that's something that my kids are able to do. And it, it inspires me. Uh, so I, I think there's something very um, familial uh, about that idea of that, that cycle. Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Well, Gene, as a first time guest on the protagonist podcast, we have a question we always ask. This is a podcast that celebrates great characters and great stories. So if you could have a dinner party with any three to five fictional characters, who would you want to hang out with for an evening? Okay, so um, I'm going to go with all comic book characters, right? Uh, I would choose Usagi Ojimbo. You know who that is? You know yes, is. Stan Sakai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he, you know, I, I think uh, Usagi Ojimbo, not only is he a cartoon rabbit, which is awesome by itself, but... Um, he's also from like feudal era Japan in a really intense way because Stan Sakai did his research, you know, and I, I think that would be amazing to have a conversation with him um, about history and about the, the culture of his time and also about being a, a, a rabbit. <laughs> How long has Usagi Yojimbo been going? I know it's still going now. Dude, but I, I don't know. I think... It was, um, how, how old is Ninja Turtles? I think it That's came 80s. out a year or two of Ninja yeah. Turtles. Yeah, early like 80s, early 80s, I want to say. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Yeah, that I mean, that's one of the few, like Ninja Turtles sparked that whole black and white comics boom, right? And um, Usagi Ojimbo was one of the few that survived. Mm -hmm. Might have been the only. I don't even know if I can remember anything besides Ninja Turtles and Usagi Ojimbo. Uh, nothing is leaping to mind that that's still going, you know, that is still an, an ongoing yeah. property right now. Yeah. That's still going. It's, <laughs> I, I don't know. Okay. So, so besides that, I would also choose um, cartoon Linda Berry. Linda Berry is one of my favorite um, cartoonists and she calls her own comics uh, auto bio fictography. Cause she <laughs> says that it's like a combination of fiction and, autobiography so that's why i feel like you know you you said i had to choose a fictional character yeah i feel yeah. like she fits 
Yes, I think definitely. Cartoon cartoon Linda Berry fits. Mm-hmm. I would love to have dinner with regular, like normal Linda Berry as well. But <laughs> yeah. that maybe that'd be the best thing is to have dinner with both <laughs> like actual Linda Berry and her cartoon self. <laughs> and then I'd also choose uh, I'd also choose Robin. Robin is one of the characters that I really hated when I was a kid because I thought his costume looked so stupid. But now as an adult, I really admire him because he's able to live with this psychopath. You know what I mean? Like Bruce Wayne is a psychopath and, and Robin is like, he always has a good attitude about everything. Uh, yeah, there's like Robin. a peppiness about Robin that doesn't seem to yes. fit to the Batman milieu very well. Yeah, exactly. So I want to know how do you, how do you keep your spirits up while living with the sociopath <laughs> in this really dark, like dungeon, like mansion? It might be really good for him to get out and have a dinner party that's not full of angst. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think those are my three. Did you say Dick Grayson was the the version? Yeah, I think Dick Grayson. I like like Dick Grayson probably the best out of all all of them. Well, that would be a very intriguing dinner party, I have to say. Two Linda Berries, (laughs) Usagi Ojibo, and Dick Grayson. Well, thank you again, Gene, uh, for coming on to this episode. Thank you, listeners, for downloading and listening. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to The Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music for the podcast. Gene, is there any work that you would like to plug? I know you always have uh, some projects that are in the works or coming out soon. Yeah, well, I just... Um... I, I just started on uh, Batman Superman for DC Comics. I'm doing a two-issue miniseries called Future State. That's part of a larger uh, event called Future State. And after that, I'm taking over the monthly Batman Superman uh, with uh, issue number 16. And then they they just announced on the Marvel side that I'll be doing uh, a Shang-Chi ongoing for them. And issue number one comes out in May. Do you ever like think back to the comic book reading youth that you were and are like just a little overwhelmed that you get to play in the sandbox. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think I would have peed my pants. Like if you had like called out my 11 year old self and been like, in the future, you're going to get to write Marvel and DC comics. I think I would have, I would have flipped out. Uh, well, listeners, you can uh, reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And we do have a Discord channel for the Dueling Genre Podcast Network that you could go uh, meet and discuss things with the, the host of Dueling Genre Podcast. And Gene, uh, you have a website where uh, listeners could go see your work, correct? Yep. It's just, it's my name. So genelewinyang.com. All right. Well, thank you again for coming. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. We're discussing Superman, Roberta, sorry, (laughs) give that a fresh take, Roberta, I'm struggling with the name all of a sudden.